Well, we continue on in our sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel, looking at 1 Samuel 18. I've entitled my sermon, The Success of David. I want you to think about, for a moment, Jesus' birth. Shortly after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, if you remember, took their baby and presented him at the temple in Jerusalem. To, to this day, some traditions acknowledge and celebrate that event in their liturgical calendar. And they celebrate the presentation of Jesus in the first week of February, not far from today. Now, when Jesus was presented at the temple, he was presented to a man named Simeon. And we learn from Scripture that Simeon was righteous and devout, and that the Spirit was upon him. He had been waiting to see the Messiah, and on this day, his hopes were fulfilled. Simeon blessed Mary and Joseph, and then said to Mary about her son, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. One thing I had never considered about that prophecy was that from one perspective, it ascribes to the baby Jesus a divine act. You see, it was always Yahweh himself throughout Israel's history who was responsible for the rise and fall of many in Israel. In the book of 1 Samuel alone, God has caused some to be raised up and others to fall. Consider his raising up of Samuel and his bringing about the fall of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. And even now we are witnessing him raising up David and bringing about the fall of Saul. This divine act of causing the rise and fall of Israelites, memorably ascribed to Jesus, continues in the narrative in the 18th chapter of 1 Samuel. We saw last week that God gave David the victory over Goliath. And we see now the aftershocks that are occurring in Israel as the giant fell to the ground. We will consider this rising and falling by considering how God prospers David. It's interesting, the word success only occurs 14 times in the ESV translation in the Old Testament. Four of those times are in 1 Samuel. All of those times are in this chapter. Success. In 1 Samuel, God is prospering David and bringing about the fall of Saul. Let's consider point number one. God prospers David. And in ellipses, I have good times. David experiences God's favor as Yahweh prospers him relationally and vocationally. Relationally, David experiences God's blessing with Jonathan, with the people of Israel, and Michal. Immediately following his victory over Goliath, David and Jonathan become fast friends. Now, despite what modern-day deceivers may suggest, there are no romantic or sexual overtones here. This is the affection between friends. 
The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. We see something similar in Genesis 44, 30, where it is said that the life of Jacob was bound up in the life of his youngest son, Benjamin. This is a close friendship. And Jonathan's admiration and affection for David has been forged as a result of the victory that David has had over Goliath. The kindredness these two share is evident if you consider Jonathan's words before he attacked the garrison of the Philistines. This is back in 1 Samuel 14. The words he speaks sound like they could have come from the mouth of David. He says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Sounds a lot like David. The son of Israel's current king is so moved in this friendship that he initiates a covenant. We don't know the terms of the covenant, but he makes a covenant with what we know as Israel's next king. Jonathan symbolically demonstrates this bond they share. He gives David his cloak, his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt. And so we know that God has given David a faithful friend. And this causes him to prosper both now and will cause him to prosper in the future. And so God is prospering David through his relationships. The same is true with his relationship with the people of Israel. His relational equity with the people of Israel is again a result of God prospering him vocationally as a warrior. We read, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. David's battles were the Lord's battles, and thus it was Yahweh who was causing David to succeed with military success, and that is why he was being raised up in the opinion of the public. In fact, his success raised his popularity so much that he got in trouble. We're told that his fighting prowess caused the Israelite women to write songs about him. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. This is an interesting cultural phenomenon. In pop music, uh, there are songs, many songs, that are expressing admiration and praise for significant people. Rapper Tupac Shakur. Yeah, I know about Tupac. (laughs) Don't forget, I spent half of my working life in a football locker room. Rapper Tupac celebrated his mother in his song, Dear Mama. Justin Timberlake praised his wife, Jessica Biel, in the song, Mirrors. But our culture doesn't have really anything comparable to the actions of the Israelite women singing the praises of Saul and David. Clearly, David's relational capital with the common people of Israel was significant. 
Not only did David prosper relationally with the people and with Saul's son, Saul's daughter, Michal, also admired David. We read in verse 20 that Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. Now, the relational prosperity that David experiences just continues to rise. He ends up marrying King Saul's daughter. Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, for a wife, we read. And so we see that God is prospering David prospering David in ways that David would perceive as positive. These were good things. It wasn't just relationally, as I noted, God was prospering David vocationally as a warrior as well. Several times in this passage, the author notes David's success in battle. Initially, we are told that David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. A little later on we read, Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. In fact, in the final words of this chapter, the reason given for the high estimation of the people in regards to David mentions this. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. One commentator notes, David's divinely assisted success in these military campaigns had two effects on others. One, it added to Saul's fears, and two, it increased the people's love for David. So we see God prospering David. David is experiencing good times. He was esteemed relationally and he was successful vocationally. And yet, as that commentator notes, not all the reactions to David and his success were positive. Point number two God prospers David in ellipses, bad times. God also prospers David, and we find this much harder to accept. God prospers David through his difficult relationship with Saul. The second last verse of this chapter summarizes the bad times that David would experience at the hand of Saul. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Initially, the difficulties with Saul begin when Saul hears the women praising both David and himself, but ascribing to David ten thousands and to himself only a thousand. We are told this displeased Saul. It made him very angry. And Saul eyed David from that day on. We might say in our day, Saul gave David the stink eye. Now, this is interesting. You would think that David's success in battles would be understood to be Saul's success in battles. But that's not the way it went. It's not the way it has often gone. I told you last week that I've been reading about D-Day and the storming of the beaches of Normandy and the fight in France and the liberation of Paris. And it's been astounding for me to read of how much jealousy there was among the leaders, not only of the Nazis, but also of the British and American military leaders. Literally, tens of thousands of lives were lost 
because generals and field marshals were vying for glory and accolades and because they were suspicious of the success of others. General Patton and Field Marshal Montgomery were suspicious and jealous of each other. These things are recorded in their diaries. Fuhrer Adolf Hitler was envious and jealous of Field Marshal Rommel for the entire campaign in France. And people died because of these things. And so the envy and jealousy of combatants, even on the same side of a battle, is no isolated incident. There is clearly the idea of envy, as Saul-eyed David. This phrase in Hebrew, however, doesn't just mean jealousy. It means there was an intention to do harm to David. And that's precisely what Saul attempted. Four times he attempts to take the life of David. After they returned from David's defeat of Goliath, we're told Saul tried to pierce David through with his spear twice. But David eluded him both times. And then Saul used the fulfilling of his own promise to try and see David killed. Do you remember when Goliath was challenging the Israelites? Saul made a promise that he would enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So in fulfilling that promise to the one who killed Goliath, Saul twice more makes attempts at David's life. Saul offered two daughters to David, one after the other. And both times he required David to fight, to fight the Philistines, even though David had already earned the right to marry them. As you heard for his daughter Mirab, David was simply required to fight Philistines, but Saul gave her to another man. For Michal, Saul required David to bring him 100 foreskins of the Philistines, meaning that David would have to fight many battles in order to receive what was already due him. In both of these cases, Saul hoped to see David killed in battle. He deliberately put him in harm's way, hoping that he would die. So due to God's prospering David vocationally and relationally, Saul became jealous and afraid. I wonder if Saul has pieced together the fact that David is going to be the one who takes his throne. He certainly was suspicious of him generally. Reminded me of my favorite Shakespeare play, Hamlet, or sorry, Macbeth. William Shakespeare, as he develops Macbeth's character, jealousy and fear possess the king of Scotland. Macbeth, after his evil ascension to the throne of Scotland, became fearful, fearful of his best friend, Banquo. And he became jealous of Banquo's son, Fleance, because he believed that Fleance might replace him as king. And so Macbeth considers this challenge to his own throne and says, our fears in Banquo stick deep. And in his royalty of nature reigns that which would be feared. Tis much he dares, and to that dauntless temper of his mind he hath 
a wisdom that doth guide his valor to act in safety. There is none but he whose being I do fear. So Macbeth decides to hire some evil men to kill Banquo and insists that they kill Banquo's son as well. He says, Fleance, his son, that keeps him company, whose absence is no less material to me than is his father's, must embrace the fate of that dark hour. Makes me wonder if King Saul was one of the inspirations for the character that I believe is Shakespeare's most fascinating character. Regardless, these are difficult days for David. The king fears him, the king is envious of him, and the king attempts to take his life. The good times that David experiences, his popularity, his uh, victories in battle, they're going up, they're multiplying, but they're balanced. They're balanced by the bad times that he experiences at the hand of Saul. The bad times he experiences as the outworkings of Saul's envy and fear. And in both the good times and the bad times, God is prospering the true king. In both the good times and the bad times, God is prospering the man after his own heart. A man who will experience much that is good and much that is bad before he sits on the throne in Israel. And through this all, I suggest to you, David trusts in the Lord. He continues on the same path that he walked when he faced Goliath. For David, the battle is the Lord's. Do you see that he remains a faithful servant of Saul? despite the fact that Saul tried to skewer him to the wall twice, he continues to serve the king. Do you see that he remains humble despite his victories, despite his popularity? So much so that when Saul offers him a daughter, he says, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? The theme of this chapter, in my estimation, is one that insists on the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God to prosper his people, to prosper someone like David, and to cause someone like Saul to fall. And this theme is made practical when we see that in the good times and in the bad times, we are to trust God, and to trust his promises to us. With that in mind, the remainder of my sermon is to consider applications that we can make from this passage. One of the amazing qualities we see in Jonathan in this chapter is seen when he rejoices in the prosperity and the success of others. Jonathan seems genuinely delighted for David. Now the Apostle Paul makes it clear that we as New Testament believers are called to rejoice with others as they succeed and as they prosper. In Romans 12, 15, we are told 
to rejoice with those who rejoice. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, we are told, if one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, this is easy for us to do when we have received the same blessing that someone else has received. Or when someone else's prospering results in our mutual prospering. We can rejoice with those people. But this becomes difficult when we lack what others have received or when we don't share tangibly in someone else's success. You see, some in our congregation experience this challenge, the challenge that it is to rejoice when others are getting married while they themselves remain alone. Some of our congregation face this challenge to rejoice while others are having children, while they remain unable to conceive or to give birth. Some of our congregation face this challenge when other people's marriages seem to be flourishing and theirs seems to be failing. Some of our congregation face this challenge when other people's job prospects or pay is on the rise and theirs is plateaued or plummeting. I myself know what it is to struggle, to rejoice when I see other ministries or other ministers prosper. I wish I could say I was above that at all times, but I'm not. Now, don't get me wrong, congregation. I have been amazed and encouraged and blessed to see brothers and sisters of Westland Alliance Church Church, rejoice as others get engaged. Rejoice at baby showers. Rejoice at the prospering of others, even when they feel the pain and lack in their own lives. I've seen that in many instances, and it's a beautiful thing. And yet, this struggle is real for many of us, and it's a challenge. And the testimony of Scripture, not to mention the example of Jonathan, calls us to navigate these types of experiences faithfully. And so let me suggest two things that will help you as you navigate rejoicing as others succeed, rejoicing as others prosper, even when you lack. These two things are a godly perspective, and continual prayer. The perspective we need can be found if we consider someone else in the Bible who had a similar experience to Saul when Saul heard the lady singing about David and his 10,000s. You see, John the Baptist had an experience like this. John the Baptist was asked by his own disciples, Rabbi, He, speaking of Jesus, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Surely John must have been tempted to eye Jesus from that day on. And yet that was not his response. His response was, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. This is a great 
perspective that we need as we navigate the success of others, especially when we lack what others receive. We need to acknowledge and appreciate that God is sovereign over all things, that God is the Father of lights from whom every good gift comes, according to James 1.17. And this is not an easy perspective to embrace, but one we must embrace if we are to walk faithfully, particularly in our lack and in our pain. Another aspect of this perspective we can see in the rest of John's response to his disciples. See, in that moment, John refers to himself as the friend of the bridegroom, the bridegroom being Jesus. I think this wisdom goes beyond just suggesting that we can be happy for the success of those who are our friends. I believe we can find joy in the success of others, even if they're not our friends simply by reminding ourselves that we ourselves are friends of the bridegroom. We ourselves are Jesus' friends. Whenever we struggle with the bounty of others, especially in the midst of our own lack, we can remind ourselves that we are friends of the bridegroom, the bridegroom who is the son of God. Jesus' words to his disciples in John 15 we rightly attribute to all the disciples who would follow after them. Jesus said this, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Now, not to make light of this application, but you know what I thought of when I was considering our relational position as friends of Jesus, I thought of the movie Elf. And I thought of Buddy the Elf and his response when someone mentions that Santa is coming. Buddy bounces up and down. He grins from ear to ear. And he says to the manager of the toy department, I know him. I know him. And really, that should be our soul's response. We should be bouncing up and down inside saying, I know Jesus. And maybe more importantly, he knows me. He calls me his friend. And that perspective, along with the sovereignty of God, can help us rejoice in the success and in the prospering of others even when we lack. It's a perspective that sees God as the sovereign giver of all things and sees his son as one who has befriended us. And that will help us navigate these situations. Now, just for a moment here, I think it's appropriate to consider what it means to be Jesus' friend. See, many people in our post-Christian society mistakenly think Jesus is everybody's friend. But this passage from John makes it clear that Jesus is speaking about a particular group of people. A little earlier on, you are my friends if you do what I command you. John 15, 14. Further, in that same passage, Jesus indicates his friends are the ones he lays down his life for, John 15, 13, and the ones he has chosen, John 15, 16. So being a friend of Jesus is a specific sort of thing. 
And so you may be asking, well, what are the criteria? What is different from a person that Jesus calls friend and a person who doesn't have that distinction? Well, the difference is this. Those who have repented of their sins, those who have turned to God by putting their faith in Jesus and all that he accomplished in his life and death and resurrection, and those who have committed themselves to live for Jesus in obedience to God's word, those are the ones that Jesus calls friends. And I would admonish everyone who's here this morning and anyone listening online, either today or in the future, who has not done these things, to do these things, to repent of your sin, to put your faith in Christ, to dedicate your life to following him. Because Jesus will call you friend. And the way he calls his disciples friends in John 15, if you do that. So our first point of application is this. We can learn to grow in our joy at the success and prospering of others, even in our lack, if we have the perspective that God is the sovereign giver of good gifts and we are the blessed friends of Jesus who will one day receive fully from him that which will make the greatest gifts in this lifetime pale in comparison. I have time, if I'm quick, for one more application this morning. And this application is in regards to trusting God's promises. David trusted the promises of God. He faced moments where God was prospering him. And those moments he would describe as good times. But God also prospered him through experiences that we would call bad times. And in both cases, David continues to conduct himself faithfully. As I said, he kept serving the king even after the king tried to kill him. He remained humble, thinking himself not good enough to marry the king's daughter, even though he was the most popular person in Israel. He obeyed the king's command to be a soldier, even though this endangered him. David stayed the course. And though it doesn't say this explicitly in this chapter, I believe that the promises of God, the promises that he would be king, the promise that the Lord would deliver him, the promise that every battle he fought was the Lord's battle are what got him through the good times and more importantly, the bad times. So as we consider God prospering us, one of the most important aspects of this is to understand that God, just like he does with David, prospers us with things that we see as good and with things that we see as bad. See, this is what the prosperity gospel and the word of faith movement doesn't understand. God is prospering us in the difficulties every bit as much as he is in the bountiful and beautiful things. Scripture's clear on it. Hebrews 12, 11. For the, uh, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17 so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction 
is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Those two examples indicate clearly that God uses trials and difficulties that are painful. Trials and difficulties that make us feel as if we are wasting away. He uses them to give us a harvest of the peaceful fruit of righteousness and to give us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. And so God is prospering us in the good times and in the bad times. And so the application is this. We need to trust him, and we need to trust his promises. When I use trust in this sense, in the sense of trusting in the promises of God, I'm really thinking about two things. I'm thinking about acknowledging and affirming God's promises. To acknowledge is to accept and admit the existence of truth. And so part of trusting in God's promises is simply admitting and accepting that God's promises are true. Because sometimes they're hard to believe. Hard to believe like Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's hard to accept sometimes. It's hard to acknowledge sometimes. But we need to. We need to trust it. And to affirm is to go beyond just admitting and accepting and to enter into a posture of positive support. I not only acknowledge the truth of God's promise, but I take on a posture of affirmation and support. You become like the Mandalorian. The Mandalorian says, this is the way. And so I hear the promises of God and I take a position of support and I say, yes, this is the way. And one of the ways you can work this application of acknowledging and affirming the promises of God. One of the ways you can work it into your life is through prayer. To pray the promises. Pray the promises of God that you might grow in trust. And let me give you an example. Here is how I might pray the promise of Romans 8, 28. Heavenly Father, I acknowledge that you work all things together for good as your word says. I accept that as the true description of how you work in the lives of your people. I admit that despite how things appear to me, especially when difficulties come, your promise is the way things are. My troubles are working together for my good. Further, Lord, I rejoice in that truth. I rejoice in that promise. It is a good, good promise. It is good that you do not remove all difficulties from my life. It is good that trials come my way. They themselves are not good, but their effect in your hands is all good. As I go about my business today, by your spirit, help me to grow in my trust of you and of your promises, and help me to act in ways that acknowledge and affirm that trust. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Two ways we can apply the text this morning. We can find joy in the prospering of others by seeing it through the lens of the sovereign gift-giving God. And two, 
We can learn to trust in God's promises by acknowledging and affirming specific promises of God for what challenges us and praying to that effect. And my hope is that we will all pursue these things because God does sovereignly prosper some and he does frustrate others. And we should trust him in regards to those things in our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father God, that you are sovereign and you give good gifts to us. And we trust you in that regard. And we thank you, Father God, for your promises and we pray that you, by your spirit, would help us to trust in your promise. And I think in particular of this overwhelming challenge, Father God, to believe those things in the good times and in the difficult times. And I pray you'd help us in that regard. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.